All right, just answer me this. Is it the same size as the other two? I'm answering you nothing. (laughs) (laughs) User error 80. I'm Joe. I'm Alan. And I'm Dan. And we're back. Okay, so we've got a bunch of hashtag ask error questions for you. And remember, you can submit them on Twitter or in the Telegram group. Just use that hashtag ask error. Or you can send them via the contact page, error.show slash contact. So the first one then. Is turkey dinner really worth the effort? Now, let me explain this to you. A well-made turkey dinner is nice. I'm not going to go as far as to say delicious. It's nice. It's okay. If you go to a decent pub that has a decent roast dinner, this applies to chicken and beef and whatever, it can be nice. But cooking it at home on Thanksgiving for you Americans or Christmas for us, I'm going to argue is not worth the effort. I get the feeling that one of you is going to argue that it is worth the effort. I feel like the effort's part of the fun. Like that's part of the experience of the holiday is making something. And so this year um, I brought stuffing to, to dinner and part of the fun of it is that I spent forever like making my own croutons, which is totally unnecessary. And making it completely from scratch is part of the fun of doing it. And also the turkey dinner is generally a meat of some kind supplemented with potatoes and a shit ton of other vegetables and stuffing and maybe other meats to supplement if you haven't got a huge bird. And I love all of those things individually. I love roast dinners because I love roast potatoes, parsnips, carrots, peas, um, Yorkshire pudding, stuffing, every single one of those individually I love. But I don't want to have a meal that's just Yorkshire pudding and I don't want to have a meal that's just turkey. So it's nice to have a little bit of each of those things. And so turkey dinner is the best opportunity to have a small portion of every single thing that I like to eat. Right. I'm not going to argue with that at all. But what I'm arguing is that cooking it at home is not worth it. It's not nice enough to justify all of the energy, the the preparation time, the cleaning up time, washing up, and all of that. I just don't think it's worth it because it is nice. And okay, you could even argue that it's delicious, but you could go and pay for it in a, a decent pub or restaurant or whatever. And I understand that, but just I, I just cannot ever consider cooking it for myself because of just all the washing up and all the effort that goes into it my counterpoint to you would be you're clearly a shit chef (laughs) if your homemade turkey dinner is never as good if not better than the one you have in a pub then you're doing it wrong because mine is fucking great um and (laughs) and i get annoyed when i go to um a pub and have turkey dinner or whatever roast dinner because the potatoes are often have been kept warm for a while and so they're not crunchy and the carrots are overdone and the peas are dark green because they've been kept warm for too long and the meat has fatty bits on it and 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 a thousand other reasons why i can critique somebody else's roast dinner now if it's a family member's roast dinner i'm gonna love it because they've put the effort in to make it so we often go to my mother-in-law's for roast dinner whether it's sunday just a normal sunday roast dinner or christmas 
we go there and I love it because somebody else made it and they put their effort in and I love all the things that they cook and they cook the pudding that I, the dessert that I really like. So I enjoy it. But if I'm making it, I enjoy the process of cooking. I like listening to podcasts while I'm cooking. I like watching videos tonight while I was making dinner. I was watching the impeachment hearings on YouTube <laughs> whilst making dinner. So it gives me an opportunity to chill out and consume some content, consume some wine, make nice food. And I've made a thing that my family enjoy. So yeah, I, I can't buy into this argument at all. Yeah, I, I gotta totally agree. I feel like that it's, even if it's not cost effective, like it's super expensive to make all the stuff and it does require a lot of time, but that's kind of like the fun of doing it is like, having everyone together and drinking wine and like making the thing. And then, you know, maybe two people have different recipes for something, but there's enough people around that, you know, you want more. And so they're like, oh, well, you know, let's try this one and that one and kind of ribbing each other about like, oh, who's, you know, whatever is better. And like, there's kind of just a whole experience about bringing everyone together to make something together and then to enjoy it together. And, and like Alan said, you, you, with cooking for yourself, you get to decide like, what texture do I want my potatoes? And if we're doing a mashed potato, is it more, you know, chunky or is it more creamy or, you know, how thick is the gravy going to be? And, and I think, I think it's just uh, a really personal experience. And, and I don't know if you can really put like a super price on, on that whole experience of it. Like if all you care about is like the quality of the meal, I'm sure that you could buy a meal somewhere that's good, but it's more than just eating the food to me. Right. Now I understand why I don't think it's worth it because I hate people and would rather just go and get a Thai takeaway and just eat that on my own. Yeah. Why do you bother making music at home? Why don't you just go out and buy music? Like, it's the same thing. It's being creative with the skills that you have at home as opposed to outsourcing the creation of that thing to somebody else. It's no different. I'm a terrible chef, so that's probably why. And I'm a terrible musician, so... <laughs> <laughs> right. Myth busted. What's the best bargain you've ever acquired? Now, this doesn't have to be tech. It could be anything. Just what's the best deal on anything you've ever had? I feel like for me, like the best deals I've ever gotten on stuff was when I used to work retail, like as a teenager. And they had like discounts that you could stack. And so it'd be like, this thing's on clearance. And then there's a sale going on today. And I got my employee discount. And there's a coupon. And like this shirt is now $1.50. Like, just have you ever done that and like worked somewhere that had like discounts stacked up like that? Well, I worked for Linux Academy and got a free account, so maybe that's the uh, the best bargain I've ever got. But no, I'd never worked retail, I only ever worked in pubs and stuff. And I suppose sneaking drinks behind the landlady's back was a pretty good bargain. I think that's called theft, though, Joe. <laughs> I don't think that's a bargain. Five finger discounts a little different. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, my Linux Academy account isn't theft. That's a uh, perk, which I don't think it counts as a bargain. I think what you were talking about, Dan, is perks of the job, which is slightly different. Mm. I had difficulty thinking of an example of a good bargain. I've been given cars on a couple of occasions. Uh, three occasions now I've been given cars by other members of the family who've handed down a car to me. 
And that's a great bargain, a free car. That's a gift, though. That's not a bargain. It is. So I didn't think that qualified, so I couldn't use that. I think when I went to the States in the early 2000s for the first time and I did a week's work in Palo Alto, I took a giant suitcase with me because the pound to dollar conversion rate was in my favor and it was mostly empty and I bought loads of clothes while I was out there. I actually went out there with only like a couple of sets of clothes and I was there a day early. So I just went to the local uh, shopping mall and uh, bought a load of clothes. And while I was walking around, I was filling up my trolley with shirts and trousers and underwear for the week. Shopping cart. Yes, shopping cart, sorry. Um, and a lot of it was on sale. And I, it was already discounted because it was just cheaper. There was some sale on or something. And then when I got to the um, the counter, the guy said, uh, we're having a special offer today. And I was like, yeah, I know, I've, I've seen it. And he said, no, 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 we've got a special on top of that, a special offer where I can give you my friends and family discount. And he just pulled his card out of his pocket, went bop on the till, and it took another 20, 25% off. I was like, oh, brilliant. Thanks very much. I mean, I'm never going to see that guy again, never going to shop in this store ever again, but thanks anyway. And so I got giant pile of clothes for next to nothing. So I think that's probably my my best bargain. And and the other ones that I can think of are all US retail. They're all they're all bargains that I've got in retail outlets in the US. Okay. I was really struggling to think of an answer to this, but then I thought about a guitar that I bought. <laughs> of course. Obviously. Um this is quite a strange story actually. Um so I bought a guitar for around about five hundred ish quid and the guy who was selling it to me was terrible at communication. He would never reply to messages or he'd take ages and would only answer one question if I'd asked two or three or whatever. Um, and so then he finally said that he'd sent it and it just didn't come. And I kept asking him about the tracking information and he just totally ghosted me. And so after a while I got pissed off and opened a case on eBay and then waited and waited um, and didn't get this tracking info and it just never came and they gave me my money back ebay did and so i thought well that's the end of that then but then i thought what if they delivered it to my neighbor which sometimes happens and so i went and checked and sure enough it had been sitting there for fucking god knows how long and they didn't bother bringing it around because it was a big heavy box and so i get the guitar and so i message him to say all oh, right i've got it and um talk to ebay about it and they said um all oh, right um yeah well uh, we'll have to give him his money back or whatever um but it turns out that because he had no funds available when they tried to take the money off him to give to me they just gave it to me out of ebay's pocket and then they had no means for taking it back off me and so about five phone calls and about two months later, one of their representatives finally said to me, oh yeah, um, there's nothing we can do, keep the guitar and the money. So I got a free guitar. Nice. I, I did anticipate that this would be a guitar-based story, of course. <laughs> Obviously, all my stories are. Yeah. And I was tempted to say, I recently got a very cheap ThinkPad, <laughs> but I resisted that <laughs> because all the ThinkPads I buy are bargains. <laughs> Yeah, including the one that I'm going to give you for free. Yay! 
If you were given $1,000 for every person that you shared your master password with, how many people would you share it with? And the person who asked this continues, uh, basically, should this person ever turn against you, you'd be left completely vulnerable. And two rules. The sharing is irreversible and married couples count as one person. When I read that last bit, I was like, damn it, because I would definitely share it with my wife. So I guess this comes down to how many people do you trust? I don't understand why I would share my master password with anyone on the planet. Because you get $1,000 each. That doesn't seem like very much money. Well, I didn't want to say that because that sounds like a very Western, well-off thing to say. Because for some people, $1,000 is an awful lot of money. Yeah, well, it's not that it's not very much money, but it's not more money that's in my bank account that I'm going to lose if somebody uses my master password to steal all my money. Right. The inconvenience cost of someone doing something with that password amounts to way more than $1,000. Right, but if it's someone you really trust to not fuck with you... It's not about them fucking with you. They might write it down in their list of very important things that people have told me in in my life and lose it. And someone that could be revealed, you know, it doesn't have to be written down. It could be any one of a number of ways that they could non-maliciously reveal that information to somebody else, like drunkenly in a pub. I could picture you telling me, like, somebody else's password as a, you know, his password's got, you know, willies in the middle of it or something, you know, just because it's funny and it's a funny anecdote and story. And I could imagine that when you pass on this information to somebody else, they don't value it anywhere near as much as you do because they're not directly impacted if the information is lost. Right. Let's turn the question on its head then. How much money would it take for you to reveal it to one person? Because clearly the answer to the original question was zero. Let's say 10,000. Would you share it with, I don't know, your brother or someone you trust? If I could have control over it, like not just telling them the password, but giving it to them in a sealed envelope, which they had to deposit at their bank and I was allowed to check on it at any time to see if it had been opened, then that would give me slightly more confidence. But I still don't think 10 grand is is good enough. 100 grand? I mean, everyone's got their price. (laughs) Yeah. So what is it? What about you, Dan? What's your price? I feel like if it's a thing like adding them to like my Bitwarden shared account kind of thing, then I think that's easier to be like, oh, you know, whatever, shared accounts kind of thing. And then we could just rotate those passwords and whatever. But like my master password, I don't know, man. That's a, I guess there's probably one person that for $10,000, maybe one person. It seems like it might be an acceptable risk. I think one possibility would be to share the master password with someone who's an internet fuckwit, who is the person in your family who hasn't got a clue about the importance of this kind of stuff. So for them, it's just written on a piece of paper in a drawer somewhere. And 
it, it carries zero importance to them, so they're never going to share it, never going to reveal it, because as far as they're concerned, it's some computer thing. That might be possible. Dan, a million dollars. I said I'd do one for 10,000. Yeah, so how many for a million each? How many for a million? Well, it gets worse the more you do. Like, I don't think no matter how much money it was, and like after like five, I think you're like, it's too much. Because <laughs> then you're just going to lose all that money again anyway. I mean, once it gets to a certain point, you can just close all your accounts and move to a new bank and set everything up and still be up on the deal. So there's the what price your inconvenience. If you could just change the password effectively, then... Well, then who cares? Like, give it to everybody in the world and then change it. <laughs> <laughs> well, sharing is irreversible, so I guess that doesn't uh, count. What if you just went on TV and and told however many million people and got $1,000 for it? Like that LifeLock guy? Who? You don't know the LifeLock story? No. So um, there was this guy who did this thing... Um, I don't know if you guys have an equivalent to like the social security number, like a national ID of some kind, yes. right? Well, so he went on TV and he did this thing of like, our identity protection is so good. I'm going to put my social security number on the side of this billboard for everybody to see. And nobody's going to be able to steal my identity. And he got his identity stolen by like everybody. <laughs> I can't see myself going on live TV and revealing a password because you are utterly boned at that point. No matter how much money you've got, if I revealed like my master password, I mean, it's possible that your accounts might, you could be confident that all your accounts have two-factor auth on them. So if they had the master password and they had all your other passwords, you know, maybe they couldn't get in. But what you don't count for is all the social engineering of them saying, yeah, I've got the full password and you know, you could send me an email and I'll receive that and I'll be able to click the link in the email because they'll have your email password as well. So no, I, I, I just don't think there's a price on that inconvenience balls ache. Having had to go through changing hundreds of passwords once when I did get owned, I'm not going through that again. So no. Have you ever had an imaginary friend? Has anyone? <laughs> I think this is a thing where people don't want to feel left out, and so they say they've had an imaginary friend, but I don't think anyone's ever actually had one. Well, I certainly haven't. I had a brother, well, have a brother, who is uh, 18 months or so older than me, so we were inseparable as kids, so there was no need for me to have an imaginary friend. How do you measure the imaginary friend? Like, By what measure? Do they have to have a table set at dinner or do they have to have their own room in the house? Or can you just say, yes, I've got an imaginary friend. I'm going down the park with Bob, my imaginary friend. Well, there's a documentary about this called Drop Dead Fred. So that's my measure. So I've heard of that. It's got Rick Mail in it. It's from a long time ago, and I, but I don't remember the content of it. But the, the reason I ask is I sometimes talk to myself and answer my own questions. I have a conversation with someone and I never set a table for them. And I don't tell my family that I'm going to the park with this other person, but I'm definitely going with them because they're in my head. Um, and I will often hold full on conversations with them and, uh, maybe even 
practice conversations. I've even practiced conversations we've had on this very show <laughs> uh, with this voice in my head. What do you call yourself? I don't think it has a name. I think it's just, it's just, it's just that voice. And I, I, it's not a friend. It, it's me as well. It's, they're both me. Is this not just your internal monologue? Well, no, because I have two sides of the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so it's an internal dialogue. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's an internal, uh, dialogue. I thought lots of people did this. I'm beginning to think this was a stupid thing for me to say out loud now, and I should have kept it between me and me. <laughs> so there's a, uh, there's a book recommended by a therapist that I read called Self-Compassion that talks about this exact thing, being your own best friend. So congratulations, Alan. You're on the path to self-compassion. <laughs> I surely everyone does this like you have a like I, I would challenge you next time you're completely alone I'm sure you talk to yourself out loud sometimes and sometimes in your head it's normal surely well I insult myself when I do something stupid oh yeah I call myself a fucking twat all the time yes yeah and I actually call myself Joey rather than Joe I don't know why. Well, I do know why. I think it's because my wife calls me Joey, just taking the piss. And so that's what I call myself. <laughs> and that kind of differentiates it. So I suppose to some extent, but I don't have great dialogues with myself. I kind of think about stuff and think through certain conversations and how they're going to go or whatever. But I, I wouldn't go so far as to call it a proper dialogue. So this is interesting because, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that qualifies as what people typically think of an imaginary friend as, but I guess in that respect, then I, I would expect that just about everyone has some kind of like Jiminy Cricket, you know, that it's like mm, kind of either judging you or supporting you in the background, you know? Uh, yeah, I, I would say that's probably a pretty normal phenomenon. Good. Many of the things I've said so far on this this show could be considered utterly mental, but that's not one of them. Good. <laughs> Is the gig economy good or bad? So we're talking about the likes of Uber. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's good and bad. I mean, it seems like it's not great for, like the people who work in it and other industries and doesn't seem like it's sustainable. Like if you look like at Uber specifically that the last I heard, they kind of stay afloat through some kind of fuckery of capitalism and it's not really like an actual profitable company. So that's probably not good. But on the other hand, I really like being able to call a ride and just go somewhere. <laughs> I lean towards potentially good, but currently bad. So potentially it has the ability for people to have self-determination on the work they do and pick and choose their hours and be super flexible and work around whatever their lifestyle is. If they like working through the night, then they could do that. If they like only working on particular days of the week because it works with you know, a member of the family they have to look after or something like that, then I, I really think that is a, a great 
empowering way of doing work, but the the downside is it's not very well regulated. And so the people who are likely to do this are being taken advantage of. And I think that's the worst part of it is not that, um, I wouldn't cite specifically Uber because this is not limited to Uber. They're just the biggest, um, most well-known, awful company. There's plenty of others. Have you ever gotten to one of these cars and the only sticker they have on their windshield is the Uber one? It always seems like they're like, I do Uber and Lyft and food jets and Postmates and like it's all of them, right? And it seems like if they're doing all of them, like this doesn't seem like it's a real like sustainable job. Right. But um, I mean, if you've already got a car, which is the tool of the trade and you're not always going to be given jobs by one of the companies, it makes sense to have some redundancy in case you have a lean period. So you could choose to do something else. And on a Friday night, maybe you don't want to pick up drunk people, but maybe you're okay delivering food because you're less likely to have someone throw up on the inside of your car if you're just going and you know doing Uber Eats instead of Uber. I realize they're the same company, but you know, if you, if you split yourself between these different places, you have, again, you have more control over your life. That's, that's the goal, the panacea. But whether it ends up like that, obviously it's not. Yeah. But does it seem like the people who do this for a living, like do all the services because they're like, this is great for me. I can do so many different things. Or is it because they're like, this is the only way I can pay rent is to do all these different ones. It kind of seems like it's more like forcing people into like a really crappy work life kind of situation where like they don't actually get to choose their hours. They're like, I need to drive to the airport now because this is a good time to do that. Now I got to go run food because this is time to do that. And like he seems like people are more scrambling to try to make ends meet than it is like this ideal of like, oh, I really like to work at night. Right. And that that's that's the bad side of it. I think it's not. I think it's poorly regulated and I think people um, are being taken advantage of by the companies uh, in terms of their rates and the manipulation of their day. I think it's it has the power for good, but I think it's being poorly used. Yeah, and there's no sick pay and no benefits and stuff like that, which are very important in America. Well... But there's the other side of it as well, which is if you look at something like Airbnb, people take advantage of that because Airbnb originally was, hey, I've got a a couch or a spare room or whatever, I'll rent it out and make a bit of extra money. But now you've got people who professionally do Airbnb. They buy properties and then rent them out. They're running essentially unregulated hotels. And hotels are regulated for a reason, Uh, for many reasons and so you've got people disrupting the market or whatever but that market was there and regulated for a reason wasn't it yeah i don't i don't think that's surprising like any any business opportunity or any opportunity people are going to turn into a business like it used to be that ebay was the way to get rid of your old shit Whereas now it's full of businesses and mainstream companies like Argos and Tesco and, you know, others have integrated with that platform to sell you brand new stuff via eBay. Um, and the same thing happens with, um, individuals. They, 
buy stuff or get cheap stuff at car boot sales or at um well even even car boot sales they have turned into businesses now mm. it's just effectively a market isn't it yeah it's just a, a market stall and that's the same for all of these they 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 there are people who see an opportunity and it might soak up their entire day there's a guy at my local car boot sale who sells lego and you go to the stall and you might think, oh, yeah, this person's got a load of spare Lego. No, he's a business. He's clearly buying it wholesale and selling it on. But in on this uh, platform, he doesn't have to have a property. He doesn't have to have a shop. He can't have a Lego shop, obviously, because he's not Lego. But uh, a toy shop is too much overhead. So just rolling up in his car and popping a table up. So these these kind of allow driven people to be flexible with their time and and in control of their time it may run away with them and like dan says you might get people who are unfortunately unable to make enough from just one and they have to do multiple jobs but there are always people like that in every society there are people at the top and there are people at the bottom and it's unfortunate but we don't live in 1980s ussr i think you mean legos I absolutely, definitely do not mean Legos. <laughs> Beer or cider, warm or flat, it has to be one or the other. What do you pick? Wait, so it has to be warm, not cold, or flat, not fizzy? Yeah, so warm and fizzy or flat and cold. It has to be warm and fizzy or flat and cold. I think I need to draw a diagram because we're choosing between beer and cider too. Yeah, me too. This Venn diagram is shit. <laughs> this is very straightforward. It really isn't. Right. Okay. Beer or cider should be cold and fizzy. No. Uh, don't give me this uh, pint of bloody Abbott ale <laughs> nice and flat, please. Beer should be warm, flat, and cloudy. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. You bloody old man. Dan, back me up on this. It depends on what kind of beer. Like if you're drinking a lager, then those are gross warm. But if you're drinking like a stout, then it's, you know, it's a winter beer. It doesn't matter. It's room temperature. Who cares? All right. Lager then. Anything but ice cold lager is disgusting. Well, exactly. So, But you have to pick between it being either warm or flat. I pick wine. <laughs> That's, you stop breaking the rules and pick one. No, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not falling for your stupid game. I, no. I'll take a cold beer and a warm cider. So I'm going to go warm beer because that's what I usually have, not lager. I used to, as a, as a youngster, when I first started drinking in the UK, there's quite a pub drinking culture, as Joe <laughs> knows. And when I was about... The drinking age is 18 in the... Is it 18? Yeah, it is 18 in the UK. It's been so long. Christ, I, I was 18 30 years ago. Um, <laughs> it's uh, We used to go in the pub near me at about age 16, and we would get served, and they never asked us for any ID, and we would drink Grolsch, because it was the thing to drink at the time, with the flip-top lids. And it was cold and fizzy, and we used to enjoy it. And it was relatively strong lager. But my 
taste has changed over the years. And yes, Joe, I am an old man and I like warm, flat, cloudy beer um, that's tasty. And I am fine with having warm beer that's not fizzy, that's not lager. So screw you and your stupid game. Well, so you're going for warm rather than flat then? I'm certainly going for warm. Well, it may well be flat, actually. It's, it's actually likely to be flat. <laughs> All right. Okay. Let's start again, shall we? No, okay. let's Imagine. Not. I've already won. <laughs> no, no, we're starting again. So there is a drink that is supposed to be cold and fizzy. So pick a drink that is supposed to be cold and fizzy. And it can be alcoholic or not. Now, decide. You have to drink one in its entirety, and it has to be either warm or flat. What is it to be? What's the scenario? What's my motivation here? Like, am I <laughs> am I in the desert and uh, I've not had a drink for days? In which case, I'll take whatever the hell lager piss you give me and I'll drink it. <laughs> no, you're you're at a barbecue. It would be socially unacceptable to not take a drink. And for some reason, some of them are flat, and for some reason, some of them are warm. And you have to pick one, or it's going to be really awkward, and you're going to get shouted at by your significant other, and it'll be really embarrassing. So you just just take one and drink it. Which one? So I, I guess in this mythical scenario where I am subservient to my friends, and I allow them to peer pressure me into drinking shit beer, <laughs> then I will take whatever shit beer I am being given. So you got two pubs, one's out of CO2, one's got a busted refrigerator. And it's a boiling hot day. Uh, I'm going to go to the refrigerator one, I guess. I'll drink a flat beer. You'd rather drink it flat and cold. Most, I feel like most beers are better cold. There are few beers that are just fine room temperature. On a hot day, that first, if you're going to have lager, that first one you have that just quenches your thirst that you could probably down in one, like that first pint is, is going to sort you out initially. And then from that point onwards, the temperature could rise a little bit and it'd be perfectly fine. That it's, it's really the first one that's got that real cut as it goes down. It really is though. Yeah. Cause once you get a couple in, you don't care anymore. It's like, whatever. I'm drinking a beer. Yeah. You don't give a shit. <laughs> And if I'm at a family barbecue, I have definitely got to the point where we've run out of all the cold ones and some idiot hasn't replenished the fridge or we are drinking them faster than they can go into the fridge. I tell you what, we go in, we have a shot of bourbon, and then we drink whatever the fuck wine there is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I used to go to the pub uh, with uh, with my girlfriend and I would have a, a half a pint of Caffrey's while they were while they were pouring me a lager. And I'd stand at the bar and just neck half a half a Caffrey's, which was quite cold, um, and wait for them to to do my lager, and then I'd take the lager over with the girls' drink and sit down. And that that first one, that half a pint that you can neck pretty quickly, was just the great way to start the evening. <laughs> but yeah, but a bourbon would be fine as well. Okay, more important, neat or rocks? Neat. I could go either way on that. Yeah, I just can't do neat. I got to do the rocks. I'm a, I'm a little, little boy. I just can't do it. The problem with on the rocks is, it gets all watery and it's like having warm lager, basically. Well, they say you're supposed to add a little bit of water to release the flavor. 
Now, I'm not going to ask this question because you two were so fucking awkward about it, so no one will ever know what I would pick. Well, we, <laughs> we don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, then, war. <laughs>